What is up, Mets fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Mets The Podcast. Episode number 224 just wrapped up a long four-game series with the St. Louis Cardinals in which the Mets took three out of four, playing good baseball again, beating up on those weak, weak National League Central teams because we know that is one of the worst divisions in all of Major League Baseball. A lot of good stuff going on in the Mets world. Pete Alonso, Francisco Lindor, Jeff McNeil, everybody is clicking on all cylinders. We got good pitching as well. We're going to talk about everything as we always do with you guys. Make sure you're following us on all our social media at MetsUp on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. If you're looking for a video version of this podcast, go subscribe to the New York Mets YouTube channel. You'll be able to find us over there. And if you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Odyssey, drop us a rating, drop us a review, download, and subscribe. We do appreciate all you guys hanging around here as we get into the dog days of summer. James, how are we feeling? Feeling good. Let's play good baseball. Great series. Love being the St. Louis Cardinals. Talk about last episode for any team that doesn't uh, isn't near an ocean. They're the most hated ones, I think, by a good margin. So really, really happy to to beat them up a little bit. Yeah, the self-proclaimed best fans in baseball. Uh, we got a little bit of a taste you know of that, that in this. That's series. not true anymore. Yeah, no, it's definitely a little uh, false. Because I mean, what, is that is that something we want to talk about right now, or we want to go through game by game, and maybe uh, we'll cover that in a few seconds here? But I mean, the Cardinals fans, I will say this: empty. Empty every single game. And if they were the true best fans mm-hmm. in baseball, they'd be packing that house no matter what because it's not necessarily always about the W's and L's. It's about having a good time appreciating your team. But apparently these Cardinals fans are a little too good for this team. And honestly, I don't blame them. It's the first time we've seen them in a long time, and they look horrendously bad. Well, that's what I was going to say is because the Cardinals fans always can get, like, take the claim of best fans of baseball because they've never dealt with any adversity, you know? It's, it's like, like, it's like the kid that, like, <laughs> Yeah, but it's like Yankee fans, but Yankee fans are, for some reason, just, Yankee fans are built differently. Whether you think that's good or bad, you can interpret <laughs> that however you want. But, like, Cardinals fans are, like, the nice kid. He went to, like, great private school. He had amazing tutors, no adversity, went to nice magnet high school, right to the Ivy League, like, never any issues. Then suddenly you get knocked back in your ass, and you're like, oh, my God, how, how am I going to respond to this? That was the Cardinals fans, though, so now we're seeing it. Yeah, they, um, the Cardinals, when we played them earlier in the year and they were struggling, but it wasn't like fully bought into yet that they just weren't very good. I feel like at that time, where now it's very much well known they're one of the worst teams in baseball, the way that they're playing and watching them play this four game series. It is hard to believe that this was the same Cardinals team of the last few years. I don't know what Ali Marmol has done there, but they look, they just play bad ball, bad baseball all around. To play bad ball, they weren't well-equipped for the the rule changes. They never no. had enough pitching, but were always able to fake it. They're making, again, this is a good way to lead into game one. They're just making Adam Wainwright pitch every fifth day with an eight ERA. It's a little bit cruel and unusual what's going on at this point. And it's just it's even weirder when you think back about You mentioned playing the Cardinals earlier this spring. They came for the Father's Day series at City Field. Think about the last time the Mets were in St. Louis. How yeah, long ago well, that was. That was like what late April, early May. I think it was late April of 2022. That was the amount of things that have happened in life since then. We were still having fun. We we're still doing the podcast ourselves. I had hadn't moved apartments yet. You hadn't moved apartments yet. I hadn't had a full revolution of a job. I never had then. And we had there was a fight in that series too, like a, a real a real actual fight. The Mets made a massive comeback after a Nolan Arenado error, and then he took offense to a hit by pitch. That was him just being the hardo that he is, like been a lot of life since the Mets last played in St. Louis. Yeah, no, it's it's a very, very long time ago. And uh, honestly, for both teams, a little bit different stories, too, with how the seasons are going, unfortunately, for, especially on the Mets side. But I will say it was nice, though, in game one to see Adam Wainwright get on the mound. And I, we did better than we normally do against him, at least. <laughs> he he just has so nothing. There's nothing left in Adam Wainwright. And my hatred for him, it knows no bounds. Like watching him throw yeah, 87 miles an hour with no movement, just dropping a couple curveballs in. You're just like screaming, hit it, hit it, hit it harder. And like three earned runs, six innings. Like the fact that he squeaked his way, like weaseled his way into a quality start was ridiculous, especially because I don't think I've ever seen this before. I didn't know how to do the search into the seeds ever happened before. We need a job for that. But if John has to spend time with his daughter on a Sunday <laughs> in the summer, guy doesn't care about the podcast anymore. But Adam Wayne ran through 93 pitches and didn't get a single swing and miss on Thursday night. I can't even believe it. I can't, I can't believe it happened, especially as many curveballs as he threw to not get one Met to swing and miss in six innings, 93 pitches. Unfathomable. What's worse that or the fact that we had to listen to John Smoltz do this game and just absolutely glaze Adam Wainwright left and right about how amazing of a pitcher he is, how he's a hall of famer, no doubt. Like all he's like, he said, I think quote, 
I knew from the first second I saw this guy throw one pitch, he was going to be one of the greatest ever. And I was like, all right, John Smoltz, the guy who, I mean, he hates baseball, so it makes sense why he would love Adam Wainwright so much because he's so exactly what the game isn't supposed to be now, which is like a control pitcher that throws 87 and his ERA proves exactly why that doesn't work anymore because it's just not not sustainable. But man, it was a hard listen, hard watch with John Smoltz on the call <laughs> with that this game. I love knew knowing that John Smoltz couldn't going to be on the call. This was uh this was a big Howie game for me. I listened to this one on the radio and really and really thoroughly enjoyed it actually because I just I don't I don't like listening to John Smoltz do games. Now we're gonna have to soon in a few months when the playoffs get started here. And I have something I've been working on for Twitter. It's been in my drafts for a while. I want to make it for then. It's gonna be called John Smoltz Bingo. I'm gonna try and drop it during a playoff <laughs> during one of the playoff series and like see see how we can do here. All the things he always says every single game. But Wainwright, the hardest pitch he threw in this game was eighty seven point four miles an hour. 87.4 miles an hour. Mets didn't swing and miss one time, like I said. Still only three runs, but it was still enough to get the victory. Yeah, I mean, Jose Quintana did another great job. I mean, what a revelation he's been for this rotation. And I know like the, the talk, I feel like, is always about what is the Mets pitching going to look like next season? Well, we know where there's going to be at least two guys guaranteed in this rotation right now with Kodai Senga and Jose Quintana. And that's a pretty good, I don't want to say one-two, but having Quintana and Senga in the rotation as two guys pretty solid especially with how Quintana's been pitching definitely this was a month to his debut almost to the day on Thursday he has a 3.03 ERA since then and since his debut start with the Mets where he went five innings against the White Sox but only had a 75 pitch limit he's gone six innings at least in every single start yeah no I mean he's been extremely consistent the kind of thing and we say it every single time he pitches now every but boy oh time. boy could this <laughs> what would this season look like if they had Jose Quintana from the start which I know it sounds so crazy to say that out loud, but he really has been exactly what this team desperately needed early on in the year. Yeah, just consistent, reliable length pitching, just that it just being a veteran, being a professional. It's why they went after him in the offseason. They they cited his durability. And he happened to have a like it's even worse than a freak injury, having like a medical condition. And it yep. made him miss a couple months of the season. And he's come back and it just he does exactly what Jose Quintana loves to do. He throws sinkers, he throws curveballs, he keeps the ball down, he keeps it on the ground, and he puts you in position to win. And then also, another cool another cool thing happened in this game. Tim LaCastro, Timmy Loco, as we like to call him here, hit a home run. Eighth of his career. That's a big deal. That's exactly what I was gonna say. I was like, can't forget Timmy Lowe as well getting on the board with a home run this one. Alonzo got a home run off Wainwright, too. And as we know, Pete Alonzo owns the St. Louis Cardinals. Honestly, I think just owns the entire National League Central. If you break it down, it seems like he plays well against every single one of these teams every time he goes out there. But Pete with another great game, McNeil, Lindor, like all their numbers have just been climbing and climbing and climbing. And really outside of that six-game skid right after the trade deadline, the Mets have been playing pretty good baseball for like a decent chunk right now. And you see the guy as at the top with Nimmo, Lindor, McNeil, Alonzo. They've all been playing well. It's like, man... Like they, you can understand why everyone was so excited about this team. The people who were like, I knew it, you're liars, you were wrong. I don't care. And just the fact that, again, said it a lot, like it was always the pitching. The offense was always good. The offense was yeah. always going to be good. Like I, there's going to be, I'm going to drop some stats about Francisco Lindor and also Vogel back specifically the last few months. Jeff, Jeff McNeil as well. Pete Alonso is literally just three weeks when his wrist hurt. He just didn't yeah. hit. Otherwise, he's been one of the best power hitters in baseball. Like we always knew he was. And it got, that goes into game two, where the Mets offense really started to come alive in games two and three of the series. We're gonna talk about the offense really quickly here because then there's gonna be a lot more to talk about about what happened <laughs> in this game. But Brandon with another leadoff home run, his second of the week, I believe, if I remember correctly. Was it maybe not Pittsburgh? Maybe not this week. I don't know. But Third home run of the week, no matter what. Four more hard hit balls in this game. So now twice in five games, Brandon was had at least three <laughs> hard hit balls in the game. As I, I said last episode, he did that 12 times in the first 50 games of the year and none between May 21st and this past Monday. So Brandon Mo definitely seems like he has turned a corner again, maybe gotten healthy, maybe just something clicked, maybe something in the preparation, but looks like he's going to end the year how he started it, and that was blazing hot. Yeah, has criminally underrated in all terms of Major League Baseball. Just doesn't get the love of some of these other guys in the league that put up similar comparable numbers. And Brandon Nimmo just does it every single day, day in and day out. Tim LaCastro get another couple hits in this one, swinging the bat. Well, don't let Tim LaCastro get hot. That's a two-hole hitter, Tim LaCastro, the you. Two-hole Timmy. Two-hole two Timmy. Timmy Loco or two-hole Timmy. I like both of those for uh, potential nicknames going forward. But the big story from this game, the thing that you guys probably want to hear us talk about the most, is uh, Mason Wynn made his debut for the St. Louis Cardinals this week, called him up with uh, Lars Newtbar. He's a very exciting player. Kind of wanted to see Lars up close this weekend, but yeah, I get what you get. 
uh, going on the injured list after hitting a, a foul ball in a bad spot, which is just is one of the funnier baseball injuries that happened recently. So Mason Wynn comes up, highly regarded prospect, former either first or second round pick, high draft pick, crazy first tools, round pick. first round pick, insane arm, a bit of a smaller guy, but still gets the power, still has like a velocity, pretty high in him in general. And he hit a ground ball to third base line. And then that ball was thrown Aaronsley to Pete at first base. Pete dove for the play. And when that happened, the ball got scuffed up in the dirt a little bit. Pete just being a little bit disgruntled that a player who is, uh, you know, a young guy got, got, got on for a ball that would never left the infield. He just took the ball and kind of frustratingly just woofed it into the crowd. Just totally yeeted it. And to, <laughs> to his dismay, that was Mason Wentz's first major league hit. And Pete chucked the ball 15 rows deep. Yeah, I mean, I think you could tell immediately that Pete felt super, super bad about this. I mean, we've been around Peter Alonso enough. We've spoke to him. He's just genuinely like one of the nicest, kindest dudes probably on a baseball field at any given moment. He's just such a happy-go-lucky guy. Like, yeah, everybody goes through their moments where they feel sad. He snaps some bats here and there. But Pete, if there is anything Pete Alonso is not, it's a mean guy. Pete, I don't, and you know what? I'd be scared to see Pete mad. I'd scared, I'd be scared to see him angry. I wouldn't want to see that happen. But this was obviously clearly an accident, and the internet went absolutely crazy because for some reason there's a narrative out there that Pete Alonso is like this awful dude, and people hate him. I, I can't wrap my head around it. Every single time this narrative comes back up, I always get a little bit confused by it, and it's just become so obvious that these people don't like watch and like see Pete Alonso at any given day. Of course day. not. Because he like you can you can you can hate Pete or you can love Pete, but you have to everyone has to understand that he is always completely himself, no matter yes. what. When he's like messing around the dugout, when he's hitting home runs, when he's like chirping people, when he's snapping bats, and when he like Humping apologizes. Yeah, when he humps the when he humps the railing of the dugout, and then when he apologizes profusely for not realizing that that was a player's first major league hit on a ball that didn't leave the infield that he had to get dirty for. He's being honest. Like I, I was scared Pete might have lost sleep over this. Like he was upset. I was like, I don't want this to, to, to cool Pete Alonso's hot streak. And another funny thing about this is that he had gotten bean the day before, and he, the Cardinals have gone after him a few times. He literally was like kind of singled out in a fight against them last year. Most of the same roster, a lot of the same players and coaches. Um, so there was even a little bit of people in the internet who were like, oh, Pete did this on purpose. And I was like, first of all, there is absolutely no chance in the world that <laughs> most baseball players would be this petty after no. getting hit in the day before, but a game between two teams under 500, definitely don't like each other, but regardless, would throw a player's first hit into the crowd on purpose. Second of all, if any player did do that, that'd be crazy dog. That'd be insane yeah. amount of dog in them. But I, again, this, dog. Clear, this clearly wasn't the moment for that. And everyone knows how hard it is to get your first major league hit. A guy like Pete who came up through his team system was a high draft pick, probably understands that better. And then he he definitely made right on it by sending Mason Wynn an autograph bat and a bottle of uh, I think it was some some I think it was it was Johnny Walker. No, it was Johnny it was Walker Blue. Kind, I think it was some kind of 1942 bottle of alcohol, very fancy bottle of alcohol. Oh, told him good luck, Don Julio. Don Julio in 1942. Yeah, yeah. no free ads. Uh, Yo, no. best tequila on earth. But he sent him a bottle of old, old tequila. Yeah, he sends him some tequila. Classy uh, move. I mean, we were we were at the bar on Friday night hanging out as as boys do in in the big city. And we were watching him at, like, I don't want to say the press conference, but it, with the reporters <laughs> at his locker in St. Louis. And Pete just, like, you could, see, you could see his reactions. You're like, this guy did not do this on purpose. Like, there was a lot of like, oh, God. Like, he, he looked like he made the biggest mistake of his life. Like, he would have thought he did something horrible and you know what the the best part of this entire story is mason win got the ball the ball didn't yeah. disappear the ball wasn't taken and ran away and someone didn't hijack it or whatever the ball went right back to mason win so all the uproar and hoopla was just the best fans in baseball again jumping on one of the greatest power hitters we've seen to ever start a baseball career because you know they're so tuned into the national landscape it seems like yeah right and he they, they they were letting Pete hear it the rest of the series. He was getting cool. booed the rest of his at-bats. Like, he was genuinely upset. Anyone with eyes and a beating heart and a working brain could be like, oh, this guy's very upset. He screwed this up. He made right on it five times over. It ended up being no harm, no foul because the player got his ball back. And the best fans in baseball, in major air quotes here, people not watching on YouTube, just couldn't couldn't lay off the guy. Like, it's I know how bored they must be with the way the season's gone for them and probably disgruntled because they don't really see a path forward because they have absolutely no pitching development, have no means to get some in the next few years. So you kind of have to focus on something for the Cardinals because you have 
little hope for success in the future. The only thing going for them is that they play in one of the worst divisions in baseball. So yeah. they, and they've been doing that for a while. They kind of, they're NL central merchants and always have been, but it's so ridiculous to pile on this guy for such something that was such an honest mistake and something that he feels so obviously bad about. Yeah, I mean, I, Cardinals fans don't even like their own players sometimes. Remember when uh, Wilson Contreras was a big problem? So, I mean, it's I guess it's not shocking for the best fans in baseball to hate a player on another team when they hated their catcher that they gave a mega deal to. So, he's not Yachty. He's not Yachty. If you're not Yachty or Molina, <laughs> you're the worst person on earth. No, if you're a catcher and you can hit, we don't want you. You got to control the staff. Yeah. It's also the, the way Pete threw was also funny. Like he did look oh, back and then, and then and then took like a double tap and then just roof right over the net. Oh my god! Absolutely, you did it. I do. I feel like I could be wrong. Was their first base coach Dubby Clap? Yes, I believe so. Okay, so that man has a rivalry Pete anyway. So he's yeah. he's, uh, he, he's Gator rolled him. So <laughs> <laughs> there's history there. But it's yeah, uh, that's crazy. Dude. It was crazy that people said that. And in the midst of this, all Pete did was continue to hit more and more home runs against this team. He has now. I want to do his math right here? He has 13 since July 25th, less than a month. It's just it's crazy. It's awesome. Yeah, no, it's play. Also got to talk about uh, little Joey Lucchese, return of the churve. Joey Lucchese, he's not a Missouri boy, but he played his college days in Missouri, I believe, at Southeastern Missouri State or some something along the lines of that. Uh, I think it might be SEMO, one of those 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 schools. But yeah, Joey Lucchese, I mean, looked fantastic, looked great again. He's just kind of like every time he's come up this year, it's been really good. Yeah, five and two thirds, uh, nowhere in runs, five strikeouts. The curveball was silly. Got eight whiffs, churf. And 14 swings. Churf, 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 churf. Of course, the churf. And he has like the sneakiest 3.5 ERA in 30 innings pitched of like any player in baseball this year. It's unbelievable. And you're right, Southeastern Missouri State was the college. Let's go. Southeastern yes, Missouri that. State University in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Sure. It's got to be yeah. like, it sounds a little Cajun, Girardeau, almost. It does sound a little Cajun, a little, a little French influence up there. But yeah. Really nice. And then taking a nice start from Lucchese, taking the hoopla of the Pete moment early in the game. And then the offense totally popped off in the seventh. Hit parade at the top of the order, started by uh, Nimmo, Tim LaCastro included, to Timmy, Timmy Two Hole. And then Jeff McNeil put a big exclamation point on it with three run home run to put the game out of reach. Jeff McNeil's average and OPS slowly, slowly climbing back up to where we could expect it maybe one day. I don't think he's going to be hitting 320 this year with a you know 850 OPS by any chance. But he keeps playing like this. I think over the last like two or three weeks, He's hitting like 330. Like, we know he's a good hitter. We know he was going to find it eventually. Jeff has a 133 WRC plus since the trade deadline and has raised his full season average from 252 to 263 in just those almost three weeks. Yeah. I mean, he's a beast. There's the only guys really hotter at the plate right now are uh, Julio Rodriguez and Bobby Wood Jr. So, <laughs> and Francisco Lindor. And Francisco Lindor. We'll talk about him a little bit more. Nice win. Take two of the fir- or take the first two games, moving on to game three with just immaculate vibes. Immaculate vibes. It felt, and I, I think Gary and uh, Keith mentioned it, said uh, the way that they're playing right now does remind us a lot of last year. He said they feel relaxed. They look confident. Keith was making a lot of comments about this. There's a play at one point where Jeff McNeil tried to turn two on a very difficult ball up big in game three and threw the ball a second to Lindor, and Lindor was there. It was like a tough play. And Keith's like, man, these guys are just... They're kind of just vibing and chilling and playing baseball like we expected them to. Like this is good to see. Yeah, it just it feels like it's baseball's fun again. They're they're loose. There was a great play on Sunday there where Rafael Ortega scored from first on Jonathan Aru's single, and it was like all right, he, he's he's moving there. Even like the P play, he got thrown out in uh, the eighth inning. But like you just see him like try to be aggressive, like take advantage of a bouncing ball, and like all right, like they the guys are not really. It seems like they're playing again more than thinking. It felt like the yes. first half was a lot of thinking rather than playing and this was just this was just an onslaught like from the middle of the game on it kind of started like a little like a little back and forth francisco Lindor scored in that drop third strike in the first inning he basically stole home we're gonna say francisco Lindor <laughs> stole home on that one but from the middle innings once we saw miles mikolas once got home runs from pete vogie put the exclamation point on it with a grand slam demetrius jerome hit another one late vogie's grand slam was great Pete's went 400 470 feet estimated distance which is one of his longest home runs of the year just, just absolutely just took advantage of a very, very subpar pitching staff. Yeah, no, Miles Michaelis is bad. He's a bad pitcher. Yeah. The Lizard King for for killing lives, live lizards uh, in the bullpen when he was in the Arizona Fall League, eating them he didn't kill. He didn't kill a live lizard. He ate a live lizard. Well, it also died. Yeah, yeah but I think you're burying the lead there. You could just kill That's a lizard. That's eating true. A li- eating a living lizard. Having a lizard squirm down your esophagus is much different. You guys should look up that story if you've never heard of it. 
poured Sprite on it, then put it in his mouth and chewed it and swallowed. It's one of the most foul videos on the internet. And yeah, you, you can watch it still in the bullpen of the Arizona Fall League. So check that one out if you're sickos like us. But I want to highlight Vogie because that Vogie Grand Slam was like, he just went down and got a pitch and absolutely crushed it. And he's been having that like kind of like a little like center, slightly opposite field power alley now, like since he's gotten good. I was like, I feel like Vogi has been really good like for the last month. And I went back and it was actually a little bit past that, the mental health break. The mental health break spanned 10 days early in June, from the 8th to the 17th, I want to say, or maybe like the 6th to the 16th, something like that. Since that, since those 10 days off where everyone said Vogi got the clear his head, he has a 120 WRC plus, 800 OPS, and eight home runs and 120 played appearances. Now, 120 played appearances comes out to almost like a fifth of a season, right? Because usually a regular, yeah. like a regular season of baseball, you have 600 played appearances. So, 120 times five is 600, right, Mark? Yes, that's you, that's how it works. So can you do some other math for me? What's eight times five? Eight times five. Uh, that's going to be a 40. 40. So <laughs> two months of baseball from Daniel Vogel back, and he's on a 40 home run pace. So whatever you can say about the guy, he is hitting the crap out of the ball since that break. And maybe this is anecdotal, but I feel like he has been way more aggressive, especially these last two weeks here. Because in, in this game, that home run in the, the Grand Slam came on a 1-0 pitch. And normally, we tend to see Vogelback, who is lauded for his eye. He obviously does have great plate discipline. There's never a doubt there. But we see him swinging early and being aggressive. And this is always a guy who, when he hits the ball, he hits it hard. It's just been a thing. I feel like the the issue that maybe some Mets fans have had or the struggles that have come from Vogelback has been there's just been a lack of aggression behind the way he takes uh, at-bats at the plate. And Keith was talking about it too. He's like, I'm really liking the way he's swinging the bat. He goes, I think he got closer to the plate, and he's just like, I'm, I'm going to start swinging. I'm going to start taking hacks, and it's been working. Like, whatever it is, keep it going, Daniel Vogelback. This is the this is the player that me and James knew were inside you the entire time because you've done it before. You did it last year too. It was just, I, I don't know what was going on at the beginning of the year. Maybe it was just, I don't know, a lot, a lot of pressure or whatever it could have been. But the the old Daniel Vogelback that we're seeing again, it feels good to actually get to see that happen. I'm, I'm going to get his uh, his, his aggress swinging aggressiveness now in a split. But it's going to take a second to find. But as of before the mental health break, Daniel Vogelback, great podcasting here, such good podcasting here. He was swinging 32% of the time and seeing 48% of pitches in the zone. So now let's check that out for since the mental health break. And we saw him in game four as well. I think he had at least one or two more hits, um, hit, hit one down the line early in the count. It also was funny that after he hit this grand slam, he ran into the dugout immediately. Like they showed him on the camera. He said something to Tim LaCastro, Danny Mendick, went down the stairs, like scurried down, and those guys were dying laughing. So whatever it was, must have been very funny, and he got out of there. Well, we do know Vogelback is a big curator of vibes, and he has been like since he came to the team. Everyone loves him. Everyone always has great things to say about him. We've he talked to him. He was a great dude. Yeah. He was a great interview. He was really happy to talk to us too. And he was like, oh, these guys are nice. Usually took, a, <laughs> took a deep breath afterwards. He went, wow, that was easy. That was great. <laughs> so I told you just now that Daniel Vogelback had a 32% swing percentage before his mental health break. Since the break, 39% swing percentage. Okay. There we go. That's, a, that's significantly better. And uh, he's whiffing less too, 23% versus 18%. And he's doing significantly more damage. Beforehand, he had a 50% hard hit rate and a 5% barrel rate. Since then, he has loathing, loathing, great podcasting. Same hard hit rate, 50%, but that barrel rate jumped up to 9%, which is now a little bit above league average. And you can, you can really feel it. You can really feel that Daniel Vogelback is hitting the ball quite well. And same amount of batted balls before and after, about 81 versus 76. So something tangible did happen to Daniel Vogelback with that break, and he has been kind of the player that – we expected him and hoped he would be when he was acquired last year. Now, since now talk about uh, a player that we'd been hoping for, or I, sh I should say Mets fans have been hoping for me and you knew this forever. We've, yeah, we've known how good this player was. We've never wavered even for half a second, not even for a breath of air, Francisco Lindor four hits on the day in game three. And it's just insane how good this guy is. He is, I think right now top five or six in F four in all of major league baseball. And yeah. and I know there's some of you out there listening. I know it. You're haters, and I don't know why. I can't. I can't understand it. But James is about to drop some numbers on you where you're no longer allowed to hate. You can't. You can't do it. It's just stupid at this point. You can't. So Francisco Lindor, as Mark just said, sixth in all of baseball in F4, fourth in National League. The only National League players who've been more valuable in terms of Fangraphs war are Mookie Betts, and in this order, Mookie Betts, Ronald Acuna Jr., and Freddie Freeman. Oh, so three, the MVP candidates. Yeah, yeah. Three guys. One of those three guys going to an MVP. So. 
Brisco Lindor is high key going to get MVP votes this season after everyone fifth. said that he was done. Yeah, and everyone's gonna be like, oh, he's still overpaid. It still gets garbage time. The games don't matter anymore. Let's go back because that that only really happened a few weeks ago when this trade deadline happened. You forget that. And we go back to a date very often this podcast, Francisco Lindor's season, because I feel like we all have to understand that these baseball players are not robots. They're all human beings as well. And his daughter, Amapola, was born on June 17th. Shout out Amapola. Shout out Sophia Barron. Since that (laughs) has happened, Francisco Lindor has hit 10 home runs, stolen 15 bases, has a 310, 390, 540 triple slash, and a 160 WRC+. And again, you guys are going to say, oh, he's only getting hot because the games don't matter anymore. No, there were six weeks in between that date I just said and the trade deadline happening. Six total weeks. And Francisco Lindor was just as good for those six weeks as it's been the three weeks since then. When that happened, 617, his full season batting average was 211. Right now, it's 251. His full season WRC Plus was 95. Now it's 122. His full season OPS on that day was 702. Now it's 795. That's an unbelievable rise of full season stats in only a few short months. And it kind of makes the entire beginning of the season seem ridiculous. And the crazy thing is, if he was even just okay the beginning of the season, he would be having the best season of his career right now. And if this Mets team was in position, like a better position in the standings, he would also be an MVP consideration for the second year in a row. Second time in three years since he's been a Met. It's yeah. it's really, really, really amazing how good he is, how consistent he is. I don't think many, not just Mets fans, baseball fans really understand it anymore. No, I got a uh, video coming out later this week on my YouTube channel about most underrated player from every single team. And Francisco Lindor is the clear and obvious choice from the Mets. It's more of an underappreciation, if anything. Just baseball fans and even Mets fans in general, there's a bunch of Lindorks still out there, loud and proud. I don't know why you would be proud of that, but absolutely crazy that you can't get behind this guy now so happy he's our franchise shortstop ecstatic thrilled can't wait it's just also like we keep the contract always comes up people are like yeah well he should be doing this okay well he is doing that so first of all if you think if you think he should be doing something and he is doing it there's quite literally nothing to complain about there right right that's what it feels like okay and then we say it all the time all these other contracts are ridiculous. Corey Seager right now is having like a legendary season, like one of the best we're ever going to see, like probably from a shortstop history of baseball. Like I'll give him that, sure. Hats off to you, Corey Seager. But in terms of all the other contracts that have been given out to high-profile players in the last few years, Fernando Tatis Jr., you guys know what's happened since that contract got given out to him. Manny Machado right now is having the worst season of his career. You look at Xander Bogarts and Trey Turner, two other marquee shortstops who are signed through their age 40 season. Lindor's only signed through, through his age 37 season. It's a very important three years when you're talking about the contract and the value yeah. of the player. You see a major drop-off in hitters that goes on, especially the, like, the really elite ones. Like In terms of like the hitting aging curve, I think it's kind of extended past where we all thought it was for a lot of time. And the worst thing that you see go away with hitters like in their age, but kind of drops off between 33 and 35 is just a chase rate and your ability to make contact on those chase pitches, like have the athleticism to basically make more pitches, waste pitches, keep getting around in the fastballs and the elite breaking balls. But Principal Lindor has been doing better at that as he's gotten older. So there's really no guarantee that's something that's going to get worse. And already this year, in terms of Fangraph's war, he's earned $40 million of value. So yeah. well, well, well over the $34 million he's being paid. And last year was 54, even in the awful 2021 that everyone said it was like the worst season ever. Couldn't even imagine it. He was worth $35 million in terms of Fangrass war and their calculation. But and what's was, his batting average? Even the batting average is 250 now. It's better than the league average. It's probably going to end up the year about 260. You know what it was last year? What, 270? It's yeah. really, it's we're at the point right now where there's not, nothing else to say about Francisco Lindor. He's one of the best players in baseball. He proves it day in and day out. Yeah, so super happy. We got to, we got to interview him, shook his hand, took a picture. Yeah. He's he's gonna play for this team for the next uh, forever. It's so cool. I love it. God, he's twenty two home runs, seventy nine runs, seventy five RBS, twenty one stolen bases on August twentieth. See, like you can tell me those numbers just right now. That's the end of the season. I go, it's a pretty good year. It's a pretty, pretty good year, year for yeah. Francisco Lindor. Yeah, last year was twenty six and sixteen with ninety eight one oh seven. Great, not bad. Sign me That's up good. every single year. He's going to keep balling. He just keeps doing it. Another guy who just kept doing it, Jeff. Jeff McNeil. Yep. He's having fun playing baseball again. Three more hits in this game. I said it before, 133 WRC plus since the trade deadline. has raised his batting average over 10 points since then as well. Seems like he's doing some good stuff again. Yep. Kind of just hitting the ball wherever it's being pitched. And I think, I, again, I'm not going to have you look up these numbers because, again, good podcasting here. But I think he's been more aggressive too again. I felt like he was taking a lot of pitches early in the year. He was trying to be someone who's not. He's Jeff McNeil. He's antsy. He's got ants in his pants. He's got a little, uh, little, just a little shimmy here and there, and he swings at first pitches. Who cares? 
He's not walking. He's not striking out. He's making tons of contact again. He's just putting the ball in play, doing his thing. And he's back back up in the top of the order, and it looks like he's having fun doing it. And, and another, big, another big story in this game, another guy. Like, it feels amazing talking about all this stuff. You're like, wow, you listen to this podcast. Mespas must be having such an amazing season. Because <laughs> <laughs> all these guys are doing great, and we keep telling you about them. But Kodai Sanga, God, it is so bittersweet how good he is. Because, like, the thing going into the year, like, that was the wild card. Like, he was the linchpin. Like, can Kodai Sanga be, like, the most important player in this team? And like, not by most important, I meant like become the X factor, like become the yeah. guy who is like going to be the one who's going to be better than expectations, be better than projections. And oh my God, seven innings, two hits, one run, five more strikeouts. He hasn't allowed him win three earned runs in a start in over two months, <laughs> two months since that home series, the Cardinals played at City Field. It, it's, it's ridiculous. I was June, not May. I misspoke before. I mixed up Mother's Day and Father's Day, which is, which is rough. Too much time in Brooklyn. But just fourth in the National League in earned run average, fourth in the National League in strikeout rate, and this whole run by Kodai has really been catalyzed by his cutter. I'm telling you guys about this cutter for a couple months. He threw that in his fastball almost the exact same amount of times on Saturday. It has become by far his most trusted in-zone pitch, the only one he throws in the zone more than 65% of the time. And he gets so much soft contact with it. It really helps him turn the lineup over. It really helps him pitch. It has helped him really, really pitch deeper into games and pitch more of the contact when he has to. It's the kind of adjustment that can really turn him into, and it is turning, is turning him into a superstar. Yeah, and you look all over the place, too. He's got a 28% K rate on the year, which is fourth in, ma- in National League behind Freddie Peralta, Blake Snell, and Spencer Strider. Who would you I just say? Said that. I, I thought you said, said ERA. I said both. Oh, you said both? Fourth in both. <sighs> I'm trying to be a stack guy today. That's what I get. I, uh, <laughs> that's what I get. I was like, wow, look how look how high up he is. And you were telling me it. I wasn't even listening. Good podcasting today. Great podcasting. It's Sunday. It's a lazy Sunday. We're doing a remote. You guys know. Even Danny Mendick had three hard hit balls in this game. That was shout this out was John's gr- favorite player. John's favorite player, Danny Mendick. He loves Danny Mendick. But he just this was just a fun game for the Mets. This was like one of the high watermarks like since the trade deadline of everything that's happened and all the ways we felt compared to how we felt early in the season. We're also every, this time of the year, you kind of start to get nostalgic about the baseball season. Yeah. Because <laughs> now you start to realize it's actually going to end. Every single April and May and June, you're like, I'm going to have baseball every single day the rest of my life. It's never going to end. And then once the preseason starts playing, you start having your fancy football drafts, the playoff picture comes into scope. You're like, baseball's going to end. I'm not going to be able to watch yeah. the Mets every day. And it's sad. That part sucks. But you got that night. Saturday was a nice moment. We were like, Mets baseball is fun. Yeah. Like this, this is what we expected a lot of this year, a little bit more than what we saw. But Great stuff happened. Couldn't get the four-game sweep. Oh, no. We'll be fine. It was still a great series by the Mets. Game four was what we like to call a poop fest. Just not a whole lot of great going on there. Carlos Carrasco did well through the first time, struggled after that. Um, Mason Wynn got a real hit for the first time in his career because his second hit Mason in his Wynn. career, his second hit was also an infield little dribbler as well. He's a great yeah. athlete. He's, he's going to be a very good player. One of the few things. Cardinals still know how to draft well, that's for sure. But They, they can draft well and they can develop a hitter, but I, don't, I can't foresee them developing a pitcher for a long time. I think Tim Kentz is good. Tim Kentz is good. Tim Kentz is good, but I just I know that they're going to screw him up. Well, they're gonna be like too much, too many strikeouts, too much fun. Yeah, yeah. Should you should you should throw the ball to contact more? It's gonna be like I'm throwing it down the middle and they're swinging and missing, and they're like throw it less hard, and that's gonna screw them up. That's gonna be it. I'm gonna call that one now. My uh, anti Cardinals brain, but yeah, just not a very good game. Carrasco, we we talked about his struggles this year. He really just can't get around the lineup once. I feel like he's a guy who could really benefit from an opener, like just not yeah. face Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arnado in the first inning, come in to face the fifth hitter in the second inning, face those guys once in the second or third inning, and then get the heck out of there by the time the next yeah. time they're coming up. Because that second time, or it was the third time that he came up, Goldschmidt just like pit one to the moon. So. And it, it wasn't even that really bad of a pitch. It's just Paul Goldschmidt can get inside on yeah. like 92. It's not that hard. Yeah, no, he's not even having that good of a year. Like he, he's coming off the MVP season. He's going to end the year with like 25 homers and like 85 RBIs and 270 average. So just like – Kind of just like because still a great baseball player, but just like kind of like curtailing down into his late thirties. But yeah, it just wasn't a great game. Thought we were gonna make it a little tight late. Thought we were gonna have a little bit of fun. But three out of four is a really nice way to uh, have a series. Where you were on the radio today, right? You were listening to Howie. Yeah, I was listening to Howie. So Keith, Keith was in like full chill, relaxed mode today. They were having a lot of fun in the booth as always. They're they're Keith loves St. Louis, obviously as a Cardinals Hall of Fame member as well. One of the best Cardinals to to play, which is so funny for a, hit, a club that's. So rich in history. Keith is also one of their best players, too. He was talking about he forgot his scorebook today. He forgot his scorecard. And he, he was he was like scrambling for it. He's like, where is he? He's like, you know what? 
gonna relax them and enjoy the day the game today no scorebook no scorecard <laughs> wow that's like that's like really re- loosening up and we even forgot to mention keith forgot his uh his uh one of his picks at 11 shirt on saturday night <laughs> and he had to get a piece of duct tape over over the logo for the other network that uh, does the mets games and he was like so embarrassed he was so bashful in the opening yeah. lines gary's like we're gonna talk about the game but first keith did you forget something keith and he was all red he was also wearing his red shoes on friday night he dropped those on the table his cardinal yep. shoes Nice for I mean, again. I hate the Cardinals, but cool to see Keith crack a smile. I'm gonna give a shout out to Joaquin Andohar as well. A lot of Joaquin Andohar uh, talk from Keith, who was he was a phenomenal pitcher for the Cardinals in the mid to or the mid '80s, where he put up back to back years, finishing fourth in the Cy Young, 260 innings each of those years with like a 3-3 ERA. I think I told you this when we were at City Field once, because I swear Keith brings up Joaquin Andohar so so much on the broadcast. Then you look at the numbers, you go, okay, I guess it makes sense in some big years for the Cardinals when Keith was there. Yeah, Howie also told a really cool story on uh, on the broadcast today. I just think St. Louis is such rich history, especially National League history, so these guys who are Mets lifers, they just know a lot about the Cardinals. He told a story that I'd never heard I thought was really interesting. Have you ever heard of Max Lanier? No. Lanier? So Max Lanier, Lanier, I don't know how to pronounce it, L-A-N-I-E-R, he was a very good Cardinals pitcher through the late 30s and the early 40s. I know, right? That's, not, that's pretty funny. One of the best pitchers in baseball at the time, Mexico was trying to start a new baseball league and they were actually offering players more money to go play in their league. In 1946, they offered Max Lanier off the Cardinals at the time. And again, this is 1946. So he was six and zero with a one nine three ERA in his first six starts of the year. They offered them basically twice his major league contract to go pitch for them. And he was coming off a season 1943 where he led the league in ERA, the 1-9. He had 15 wins, 17 wins. He had an injury-riddled 1945, one of the better pitchers in baseball. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to take that. But at that time, the reverse reserve clause was still in place, and the Cardinals had his rights. And they said, you absolutely can't do that. So he just left, and he challenged. He, ch- he sued the St. Louis Cardinals for his freedom. And he didn't pitch for three years and eventually did come back to the team in 1949. So I guess Crazy they story. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Isn't that nuts? So like, at, the, at the top of his game, he tried to leave Major League Baseball for more money, which we see a lot of athletes doing that now for other countries. So it's kind of interesting. Saudi, that was the his, Saudi League. I wasn't gonna say I wasn't gonna say them on the podcast, but yeah, sure. Yeah. And then we saw Neymar just do it. So interesting that a country like Mexico was like so fruitful. They were trying to start their own baseball league in the 40s, and they offered huh. one of baseball's best pitchers that and he had a major legal fight to try and get it. And it's also funny that this was almost 25 years before Kurt Flood challenged the reserve clause. Also, as a member of the St. Louis Cardinals. So the two players who tried to undo the way that baseball transactions happen and kind of set the set the league in motion to where the way we have player movement now, both played for the same team that allegedly has the best fans of baseball. Yeah, allegedly. We uh, allegedly. we also know that they somehow get a mid-market draft pick every single year as well. So yeah, yeah. even the old CBA, when they used to give teams who we were technically mid-market, it was an insane rule. They used to give they used to alternate by season, giving a compensatory first round pick or second round pick and then more money in the international free agent pool. It's ridiculous yeah. how, how, how this team cries poor, you know, they 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 ask you for money in one hand with a Virginia ham under their, under their arm <laughs> in the other. It's freaking St. Louis Cardinals. I hate them, but happy to beat them. <laughs> happy to beat them. We're also coming up to the month of September here, which means September 1st, I believe the rosters expand to 28 players. We're at currently at 26. So you get to add two players to the roster. You can only have 14 pitchers on the team. And while we'll probably know more and more as the weeks go on, just figured just a quick little talk here because there's been one pitcher in particular who's been pitching so well in the minors, guy who maybe gets a chance in uh, September. Maybe. And that pitcher is Mike Vassell. And we wanted to do this with John because John has some great data on Vassell. And I'm sure you guys know that him and Vila are doing the Future Flushing podcast. So definitely check that out. It comes out basically daily. Lots of interviews with guys. I did the Drew Gilbert interview last week. That guy's a dog. But check out their podcast if you want some more consistent minor league news. But I want to talk about Vassell because Vassell has been AAA for a few months now. In AAA, we have a lot more data than we have in AA, especially data available to public. So you can see some stuff with him. Two starts ago, he took a no-hitter into the ninth inning, which was yep. like, that was a crazy thing. It got broken up there and his last start he pitched well and he pitched again on sunday he had another really good start shutting out the columbus clippers or giving up one run against the clippers over six innings but he had a really good start again so he's now kind of found his groove in triple a since making that move up from double a where he struggled at first and the mets have a lot of candidates for those two extra roster spots also i really miss those back in the old days when they used to just call up like 50 yeah. guys in september and used to be chaos baseball like 12 pitching changes like keep rotating these guys through four hour get, games yeah just get get get, get any 21 year old double a like have them sit in the dugout you know and, and feel the game that's when you had Luke, 
It's when you had loogies around too. So you would just like a lefty was up. Get that get that twenty eight year old lefty who we called up in the game. Whatever his get name is, get him in get here. Him in. Get, get Daniel in. Zamora in. God, that was that was such chaos. I can't believe how long they did that for. Like how that was just a regular thing that they would just play forty man rosters in the month <laughs> of September. But something interesting that I've noticed with Mike Vassell, a guy who's come through the system a lot, basically was a control guy. He is fastball first, fastball heavy. Since he's made the move up to AAA, he's throwing about 60% fastballs, if not a little bit more. And that pitch is getting about 30% whiffs when he's throwing it. And it's interesting because there's a lot of pitch data in the minor leagues, right? In AAA specifically, shout out, you know, Saris. If anyone is subscribed to The Athletic, you can get his Stuff Plus readings, which has proven to be an incredibly useful tool in evaluating pitching over the last few years. They have those per pitch available in AAA. And while Vassal throws that fastball a lot and he gets lots of swings and misses on it, it doesn't grade very well in Stuff Plus. It comes out as a below league average pitch. But I looked, I watched some videos of Vassal throwing that fastball, and he's a big guy, like 6'5, 220. He's yeah. meaty. And he gets a lot behind that pitch. He really gets low and he has a long stride. And he has about 15 inches of inverted vertical break on that fastball and seven inches of horizontal movement. And I just wanted to compare that to pitchers in the major leagues who are at least of a similar size to Vassal, looked like they had a similar release point. And the closest one I could get, just eyeballing, is Michael King of the Yankees, okay. who's a bit of a bigger guy. He has a longer arm. He's like he's like a long guy. He's not as tall as Vassal, but he kind of releases the ball in a similar spot. And it's that lower angle to release a fastball that makes it a little bit harder for the hitters to pick up, which is why I think that Vassal's pitch gets so good. And King's fastball has great results and it has pretty good results in that same stuff plus model in the major leagues. So I see that and I'm like, okay, this Vassal thing is serious. But then I kind of thought about it more and the way he fills up the zone with it and uses 65% of the time, it would make sense as to why he struggled initially in AAA compared to AA because in AA they're using the pre-tacked baseball in yep. the Eastern League. So when you have that pre-tacked ball, and we just know based on the way the RPMs were going with spider tack the last few years and type of movement pitchers getting on their fastball, he was probably throwing a much tighter fastball with that angle. He was probably getting more more vertical break, and he was probably getting a lot more whistle with it too because mm-hmm. even like he throws it hard-ish. It's not super hard. It's about 94, like to 94 and 96, which is better than draft day. So good work by the Mets pitching lab to get that fastball off, up, especially with how important of a pitch it has been for him. So really interesting to see that that was his out pitch and his most thrown pitch was definitely using it to miss tons of bats in double A because his strikeout and walk numbers were like some of the best in double A that we've seen yeah. even in, in the last couple of years. And losing that ball, now rediscovering that fastball. And I think the next just step for Vassal is like getting, the, he's been throwing a cutter a lot more recently that has gotten really good results. And his curveball grades really well in that same stuff plus model. He doesn't use it a ton, but there was a great video I tweeted out today. He dropped a yeah. really nice one on John Kenzie Noel in that game against the Columbus Columbus Clippers. The pitch looks like it has great movement. And when your fastball has like that decent action, like the curveball is going to be one of the best pitches you can use off of it. It kind of, it reminds me also a little bit. It definitely doesn't have as much movement as Joe Ryan's fastball, where it has that low arm slot. Vassal's a bigger guy and Joe Ryan's arm slot is so unique. That's a little bit off the, off the grid, but it's that same kind of thing where he can throw this fastball a lot and hitters just aren't hitting it. And I think that is something that, will probably go against the model, and I kind of see more importantly because it is getting the results as much as he's using it. Now, I know Christian Javier is smaller than Vassal, but doesn't Javier have a similar thing where his fastball is kind of unspectacular, but it just gets swings and misses, or it did? I don't know about this year now. It did. Javier had something, and I guess Vassal's could have something like this too, where there's when you evaluate these pitchers and the fastball is always the leading pitch, you almost want to see... Like you have to kind of categorize it as like this fastball has good shape and good velocity or this fastball has one or the other or this fastball has neither. Maybe we have to start throwing a different pitch. And you see a guy like Javier and Eno has used this term before called a precarious fastball where I like this fastball because it has really good shape but doesn't have really good velocity. So if that shape winds up coming down a little bit, the velocity is not good. You're a little bit scared of the fastball. Shohei Otani, as good as he is, like he also has a bit of a precarious fastball. He throws it so hard. Mm-hmm. Kodai's like this as well. They throw it so hard, but the shape isn't really great. So you're missing a lot of bats with it. We've heard this a lot about new Pirates' first overall draft pick, Paul Skeens. He started pitching in the minor leagues as well, where people are talking a lot of smack about the shape of Paul Skeens' fastball. But you, like, you ever watch the guy pitch? Like He throws, throws 101. Yeah, he throws 101 with insane movement. Like Guys can't hit it. When that fastball eventually becomes 95, it probably will get hit a little bit. But Vassal right now has that 95, and he's throwing it with the really good shape. So it's going to be interesting to see through the development of his secondaries, his off-speed pitches, because it definitely won't be an elite fastball forever. But right now, he's using it a lot. He fills up the zone with it. He misses a lot of bats with it. And I'm sure John's going to talk about it more in the next future flushing because he did just pitch on Sunday. And we, we were going to have this Vassal conversation last episode, but we were just having too much fun talking about SpongeBob in the studio. So we didn't. <laughs> John said he comped him to Garrett Cole. So it's a, it's a lofty comp. 
And I'm going to leave you guys with that. And now check out yeah. Future Flushing and tweet at John. Why do you think Mike Vassell's like Garrett Cole? Because you know he's not going to listen to this episode. So this the the word of this episode is Cole. C-O-A-L. Yeah. Cole. Garrett Cole. Yeah. He, Garrett he can Cole. answer that one. We're not going to answer that one. Yes. No. So that's that's it. That's it for John. That's the Mike Vassell talk. Because having that data in AAA is pretty cool. And he's a very interesting pitcher, the way he's developed and like how he's come through the system. No, 100%. It would be cool to see him maybe get a chance in September if, you know, the Mets decide to expand maybe. the roster and use him. be cool if he gets a chance. There's a couple other guys that could get chances, too. We'll talk about guys as we get a little bit further on, closer to September. I'm sure we'll have an entire episode talking about the guys that get called up eventually. So let's go ahead and go to the estimate. You guys know John isn't here, so we're going to take this one ourselves because John doesn't love us anymore. That's what it is. John doesn't want to hang out. He's got a new love. A new, a new kid. It's his, it's his own daughter. So let's go ahead and say uh, James won the last one. Let me tell you, I did mm-hmm. hit the, I hit the overall temperature on the money, ninety nine, and it got to ninety nine during the game. But game time start was ninety four. You had ninety one, so you did beat me. And in classic fashion, when James win, the Mets win. So you guys should be really rooting against me big time. Do you have a whiteboard? I have a whiteboard. I'm gonna let you take it while I unbox it. I got, I got it from Amazon. You- you ordered one? Nice. I have yeah. one as well. Yeah, I have six in a row in the estimate. I, whenever I do well, the Mets do well. I was so hot last year when we started this thing. And then Mark got hot as the Mets got not hot through September. Really good podcasting episode. If you guys are on YouTube, you're watching Mark literally unbox his whiteboard right now. But the Mets are heading back to Atlanta this weekend after seeing them last weekend. And you guys, we, we don't have to preview the series very much because you guys know a lot about this team. You know how good they are. You know how ridiculous they are. You know that they're still playing as one of the best teams in baseball. You know how much we hate them. I'm sure we're going to have all the Braves fans flood our, our YouTube channel when, when, when we play them next series because we're going to have to pontificate about the Braves, and they just love hearing Mark especially say how much he loves the Braves. Hundreds of YouTube comments every single time we've had a series with the Braves. So I, I got to say, the last one, though, a lot of Braves fans get a lot nice. of positive comments. Yeah, they were nice. They were like, we like, we, we, you guys are our rivals. Like, it, you guys have had a disappointing season. We don't think you're a bad team. Like, we were excited to like for this rivalry to get, get going again, which it was like a little patronizing for sure, but still, you know, still, still a nice thing that like they not, you know, not total inbred. I, I shouldn't have yeah. said that. No, uh, you're fine. It's all, one, good. I guess. Yeah. All right. We'll see. We'll see. So, you, you told them what the estimate was? I didn't tell them. Yeah. I was waiting for you to unbox, but the estimate for this episode is going to be Monday's starter. For the Braves is old friend Bryce Elder. And our estimate is going to be how many breaking balls will Bryce Elder throw? Because I mean it's we're going breaking balls, balls or we're going sliders. Well, I he people call it the curveball. It's it says slider and baseball savant. So I'm just saying breaking balls to get the full encompassing one. Whichever pitch is classified as a breaking ball, that counts on this. Okay, I'm gonna have to do some uh, some quick math here. Let's see. Uh how many pitches does he throw a game normally? All right, throws around there. And we got uh, that number. I'm going to go with. I have my number. I was ah, quick on this. Wait. This is my wheelhouse. So I was right. Yeah, this is right in your wheelhouse. Hold on. Wait, I didn't like that number I picked. I'm erasing. This whiteboard I got is massive, by the way. I didn't think it was going to be this big. Yeah, that looks like almost too big for this. Yeah, it might be a little uh, too big, but I got my number. You got it? All right. Yeah. We're turning them around in three, two, one. Ooh. Right, 37. Ooh, 31 to 31 P- piazza <laughs> i had 30 yeah. written originally and i said i can't i can't go with 30 just go 31 no i got 37 he fills up that zone with breaking balls he throws like like 35 percent breaking balls and i'm assuming he's gonna throw yes. like 100 pitches so that's what so I got the there. number is 36.7 percent sliders on baseball savant and he averages about 90 pitches a game that's pretty much where his average has been so i liked going a little under 36 nice and um so that's what we got. James 37, Mark 31. I'm on a six-game heater with a two-game lead. Still have to do my estimate punishment from the first half. Have heard no word about <laughs> if I can get some pinstripe baseball pants before this weekend. So it might not happen this weekend. Maybe it happens sometime in September, but I'm working on it. Yeah, no, I mean, well, John's not here and Vito's been in France. Mets have been hot, though, so, you know, <laughs> stay hot. It's been hot. Yeah, it's a, yeah right? <laughs> the boys are on. The Mets are hot. And, again, not much previous Brave Series. We just saw them. The pitching matchups are, like I said, Elder versus David Peterson. Monday night, seven twenty. That, that hmm. Tuesday that's, evening, that's Charlie Morton versus. Yep, Tuesday, Tyler McGill versus Charlie Morton. It's also something. And then Wednesday, also seven twenty. So late night podcasting on Wednesday. Night, night, nice time for you to come back to stay up all, all night podcasting with us. <laughs> Jose Quintana versus Spencer Strider. Um, yeah, don't like them. These We'd are like games. Some games. We'll see what happens. 
These are games. I'd love, games. I'd love to win some games. I'd love to beat the Braves. Uh, unfortunate for us, the most overrated player in baseball will probably not be playing, if, if I had to guess, because I think he's on the IL still. Though he's been rehabbing a little bit, running around a little bit. But uh, Ozzy Albies Ooh. out for this series. So I think, has your boy been playing? Has been uh, has Vaughn been getting some action? I thought you meant my boy, Nick, Nicky Lopez, because he has been playing, because Vaughn Grissom has stone hands and a noodle arm, and he's not an infielder, <laughs> and the Braves recognize that. Well, a lot of other people really think he is, but... Uh, that's beside the point. I do want to highlight one player, though, who we probably should be talking about more because of how good he is. But I've been having some fun with like sample sizes, like doing some stuff this week. And just when guys have bad starts this season, it's really easy to overlook them. And one guy yep. who had a bad start who was being overlooked, who is not being overlooked anymore, is Michael Harris. Yep. You guys can probably remember all the way back in June, the first time we did a series with them, I said he was stinking. Since that first game against the Mets on June 6th, which he even went 0 for 4 in that game. So I mean, I even included that in the sample just to get the whole thing because since that Mets series, he has a 350, 380, 560 triple slash with a mm. 150 WRC plus and uh, nine home runs and 40 runs scored. And those 40 runs scored have come with 90% of his games heading out of the nine hole. <laughs> and he scored 40 runs. <laughs> 245 played appearances. Uh, I hate the Braves are so good. I hate them. And since that time, Michael Harris has raised his batting average. This is comical if you're going to hear this. From 168 to 287 since June 7th. <laughs> that is such a that is such 168 a he was hitting on June 7th. And now he's hitting he's hitting 287. That's out of control. That's insane. I hate them so much. Isn't that ridiculous? Isn't that so absolutely ridiculously awful? Have you God, ever heard of a guy who had had two full months of being bad and then now is going to finish with a 300 average? Never heard of such a thing. <laughs> And even now, you mentioned Ozzy Albies not being in the lineup. Michael Harris is hitting second for this Atlanta Braves team now. Yeah. They did just lose to the Giants, though. Wilmer Flores. Shout out Wilmer Flores and J.D. Davis playing good baseball. Yeah, shout out Wilmer. J.D. Davis is not playing good baseball. Have you seen J.D. Davis oh. since, uh, like, since Has the beginning been bad? of June? He's hit about 190 with 70 oh, plus. Hate to see it. Shout out Wilmer Flores. Wilmer Flores having one of the best seasons of any player I'm playing in baseball. It's like baseball's best kept secret right now is that Wilmer Flores has like 20 home runs at 300 batting average. Good for him. That Giants team, you don't like them, but they're going to go back to playoffs them. probably, and they just—they're so annoying. They're, gonna, they're, they're they're a little pesky. They will get knocked out instantly. That's a fact. <laughs> I think they're a little pesky. That bullpen's awesome. Camille Duvall, super fun. But you got anything else you want to say about the Braves? Oh, before we go, I know how we're going to rile up Braves fans next episode. I got it. We're what is say it? The Mookie Betts is the MVP. Oh, easy, easy choice. Or Freddie Freeman, the guy easy. that they got rid of. Yeah, I think those two are the clear MVPs. And I think I think Ronald Acuna, like you could definitely see his season like kind of falling off a little bit. And you could also see just the Braves would still win the division without him. That's clear. Yeah. Mookie Betts, Dodgers would be in peril without Mookie Betts. He is the most valuable player. And Freddie Freeman yes, is the second best first baseman in baseball behind Pete Alonso. Exactly. And it, you know, if, if Ronald Acuna was going to be in position to win the MVP, what he definitely could have done because his team's needed middle infield help this year many times. Yeah. Like why would why wouldn't he go in and play shortstop or second base? Like that his brother his brother can play Alonso. shortstop and second. That's all I'm gonna say. Yeah, right. And also the outfield. So I mean, so first of all, the Mets have the better Acuna, and Ronald Acuna is like their best player in National League, which is still really good. A lot of good players in National League, and the fourth best is Francisco Lindor. So those two like right yeah. next to each other in terms of superstar of them, and then way above them, Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman. Yeah, that's fair, understandable. Hey, it happens, but yeah. uh, that's a little preview for you guys for the next episode because I'm sure. It's going to be a fun one. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for watching. Remember to follow us on all our social media at MetsUp on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Go subscribe to the New York Mets YouTube channel if you're looking for the video version of this. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever it is, drop us a rating, drop us a review, download, subscribe. Again, we really do appreciate all you guys hanging around with us as we get into the later part of the season. Follow James on Twitter at James underscore Shiano. And me, Giraffe Neck Mark, with a C. Thank you, guys, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Peace. Peace out. See you guys next time.